VegCast. It's the 6th of November. VegCast. I'm your host, Vance, ready to talk turkey on VegCast. A full menu from first to last. VegCast. Yes, it's November now, and the first of two VegCasts that we're going to be doing centered on Thanksgiving, the Thanksgiving tradition, especially the tradition of having a huge dead animal in the middle of the table. Uh, We're going to be talking to Karen Davis, the head of United Poultry Concerns, about that issue. Uh, But we're also going to have some music, of course, as always, this time from Maggie Pierce and EJ. Uh, We will also have the uh, promo that we had promised last time from Bloodthirsty Vegetarians. And as always, we'll round out the show with a little science fact. This time it's just a pretty basic piece of information which is not being widely reported. So stay tuned. That's all coming up right here on... Okay, let's start things off nice and easy with a track from Maggie, Pierce, and EJ. This is a band that uh, I encountered uh, on another podcast that I work on, and only after helping to arrange their appearance on that uh, did I find out that they are all three, Maggie, Pierce, and EJ, vegetarians, and so qualify for... Uh, being played on VegCast, so I contacted them for that, and they were kind enough to send me uh, their latest CD, which I believe is called the Silver CD. All their all their discs, uh, all their albums are uh, seemingly untitled, but they're different colors, and this is certainly silver. It's very glittery, um, and it has an interesting structure. There are three discs to the album: uh, Morgen, Mittag, and Nacht. Morning, midday, and night, and the content of the songs uh, on each disc kind of reflects that uh, period in the day. And this is the first song on the first disc, uh, so it's kind of uh, uh, kind of an easygoing song, but just with a little hint of uh, some trouble to come. Uh, it's called Whale Song, and this is Maggie Pierce and EJ on VegCast. Thank you. 
Across the clouds, across the sky, across the sea, magnetic lines, onto the shore they lie and wait until the tide takes life away. Maggie Pierce and EJ with Whale Song from their latest three-disc album. I uh, I urge you all to check that out. Uh, and they're uh, back from Berlin where they recorded most of that album and are touring now uh, for the next month or so. They're going to be in Florida. If you happen to be down there, you can check and see if they're going to be uh, coming to your town uh, by looking at their website, mpeband.com. So thanks to Maggie Pearson, EJ, for letting us play the whale song on VegCast. And now we're going to turn to our uh, featured interview uh, for this edition of VegCast, which is uh, with Karen Davis, the founder and president of United Poultry Concerns, uh, which she founded in 1990, 15 years ago, and uh, in 2001 wrote a book called More Than a Meal, uh, focusing on the uh, position of turkeys in American culture and Western culture in general, but especially in American culture, in and around 
uh, Thanksgiving. And so I wanted to speak to her specifically this month uh, about uh, that and uh, related concerns. So let's go to that interview now. All right. We are now here on the phone with Karen Davis, uh, the head of United Poultry Concerns. Karen Davis, thank you for being with us on VegCast. Thank you, Vance. I'm delighted to be on the show. And uh, we're talking about turkeys, uh, specifically because it's uh, Thanksgiving is coming up, one of the biggest holidays for which uh, vegetarianism uh, becomes temporarily noticed to the mainstream. And uh, you've written a book about this called More Than a Meal. Uh, it came out in 2001 from Lantern Books. And uh, I wanted to ask you about some of the uh, points that you raised in there that uh, some people may not think about in terms of turkeys and the general uh, role of turkeys in, in our culture. Um, you make the point, I think, that uh, turkey, the turkey has kind of become a, a scapegoat, a symbol for uh, uh, some of uh, what seems to be the guilt about, uh, about eating animals. Am I characterizing that correctly, or could you clarify what I've just tried to yeah, say? Yeah, yeah, I think, I think so, uh, uh, Vance. I, it's, it's really one of the things I do in More Than a Meal in attempting to understand why turkeys are um, – treated to such derision uh, as a lead-up to Thanksgiving mm -hmm. is to uh, look at the turkey in what I call in the book the carnivalesque tradition, where you make fun of, you make a buffoon out of a sacrificial animal, or it could be a human being for that matter. Um, you concentrate on body parts that are associated with uh, pornography. Mm -hmm. um, you you know you laugh at their sex life. You make fun of them as a uh, as a as a kind of embodiment of nothing but meat. Right. And so, um, I do think that uh, that that is very much a part of what we're seeing in the Thanksgiving uh, ritual with respect to turkeys, and um, kind of embodying also the vulnerability that most people feel about their own lives, which again can be. Uh, projected onto the turkey because the turkey is a victim, a sacrificial victim, which is the one uh, experience that uh, all people seek to avoid. Nobody wants to be poked at as the center of der derision. Right. And yet, since many people have had that experience and fear that experience at whatever conscious or subconscious level, uh, the turkey kind of becomes heaped with all of those anxieties and fears that we have in ourselves, and in that sense, the turkey is anthropomorphized, turned into a kind of um, embodiment of the uh, uh, things that we fear in ourselves, that we're stupid, that we could be easily uh, made a victim, that uh, we're being laughed at or could be laughed at, that any kind of, you know, any number of terrible things could happen to us, either through natural circumstances or, more specifically and importantly, through um, human human intervention. So right. all of this gets heaped on the turkey. Should I stop? Well, I just wanted to take um, the, the, the stuff that you're raising about uh, the turkey being both uh, innocent and guilty and then being anthropomorphized uh, brings us to something I wanted to be sure we didn't uh, pass by, which is uh, certainly one of the most bizarre rituals that the supposed leader of the free world has to engage in, which is the presidential pardon, uh, yeah. which I think exemplifies the, the, the bizarreness of this creature that we know is innocent, and yet we have this little bit of theater where we pretend 
that all the other turkeys that are going to die are dying because they're guilty, but one of them gets a pardon. I'm wondering um, if you could just speak to that briefly and if you can uh, even could conjecture about whether that tradition is going to take a hit when we have an administration uh, where the, the looming prospect of a president having to pardon just about everybody on his entire staff might make it a little distasteful <laughs> or more distasteful well. than usual. Well, I'm, I don't know. I don't know if I'm as good as, at projecting all of that, uh, uh, and and even predicting in in any kind of reasonable way. But I certainly I have a chapter, chapter seven in More Than a Meal, in which I examine, as nobody else that I know of has done, the whole Thanksgiving um, turkey pardoning ritual, where you take the president uh, has a turkey. Uh, per, the, the turkey is particularly raised for this event. Mm -hmm. And uh, this began in earnest in uh, under the first uh, President Bush. And it really got started under President Reagan, where Reagan attempted to deflect all of the uh, press corps' uh, uh, efforts to uh, embarrass him and get him to give a straight answer regarding the Iran-Contra uh, scandal. Uh, when uh, President Reagan would answer these questions, he would always uh, direct his responses to the turkey who was <laughs> on a platform in the Rose Garden. Right. Like, yes, he said, uh, are you going to pardon Oliver North? Well, uh, I don't know. I'm, I know I'm going to send him to a, um, a farm where he's going to live out his life in peace, you know, referring at that point to the turkey. So he used the turkey as a way to deflect any kind of straight answer. So uh, I just, just to answer my, my one question, it, it seems like since the whole event is kind of grounded in uh, a situation <laughs> where real pardons uh, were imminent, uh, it's unlikely that that that, that we're going to see any change just because we have another administration where we have a, a lot of people that are going to need pardoning. Well, so. no, right. And I don't see, I mean, most people don't remember the, the history of anything. Right. And certainly something that for most, in most people's lives is, is totally insignificant as the presidential pardoning of the turkey. Um, but, you know, the, the National Turkey Federation has tried to create a tradition in, in what I would call the tradition of inventing traditions that, um, President Truman was the first turkey pardoner, and when I was doing my initial research, I went straight to Life magazine, 1947, the year that they always claim is the year that uh, President uh, Truman pardoned a turkey. And it was interesting, and throughout the 1940s in Life magazine and Saturday Evening Post, there was almost nothing at all about Thanksgiving. And, of course, there was no turkey pardoning at all. It was just made up. Um, so now, one of the big issues that the Tur National Turkey Federation, who represents the turkey food in in industry in the United States, um, always has is, well, should we uh, name the turkey and uh, cause people to feel affection for the, the pardoned turkey, or would that cause people to start to view the turkey as a pet, and therefore they might not want to eat the turkey and have the turkey be, you know, a food animal? Right. Or should we not name the turkey and just call the turkey a production animal? What they normally have done is they have named the turkey, but they've always made a, created a jocular name. And, of course, the whole a turkey experience is steeped in jocularism and making fun of turkeys. And, and, and as we know, the term turkey itself, uh, despite its origins in what was probably what people thought for years in the late 18th, early 19th century, was that the turkey, like peacocks, came from uh, Turkey or somewhere, you know, in, in, in Asia or Southeast Asia. Right. So, so, so the, but the, the history of the name turkey, the nomenclature, has been steeped in derision and we see that derision being carried through in the turkey pardoning ceremony, which is a mock, a mock 
benefaction. It's it, it's just a joke. It's another way of making fun of turkeys. Um, and then and then it, when you look at the turkey pardoning ceremony, the uh, 99.99% of all turkeys are not going to be pardoned at all. And the pardoning ceremony actually emphasizes the fact that all those other turkeys were not pardoned. Right. And because the human nature seems to be very much in need of knowing that somebody suffered and died for them, whether it's Jesus Christ or Oedipus or a turkey, there have to be ways to um, draw attention to the fact that the turkey is not just a something like a turnip, but a someone like somebody who can suffer and die. So there's, again, all this ambiguity and ambivalence uh, in people who, on the one hand, will insist that the turkey is a, a nothing and a nobody and just this object to be consumed, and on the other hand, this need to believe that, that to, to, to need to feel the satisfaction that somebody was sacrificed, somebody with feelings. So all of these kinds of things are kind of play into the turkey pardoning ceremony. And then, of course, you know, um, you've got this, um, uh, uh, the, the, you know, the, this idea that the president is always in a position and a ruler is always in a position to bestow pardons or to impose punishments. So there's a kind of threat in the turkey pardoning ceremony. After all, it's a it's sort of you know a mockery of, and yet it's a real gesture of um, uh, kind of you know uh, uh, bestowing a uh, a, uh, a re what do you want to call it a uh, a reprieve right. on somebody. And yet, of course, the turkey you know is not really a guilty being. And 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 then there's also the idea that the only way the turkey becomes clean and cleansed and and free of the pollution that we anthropomorphically impose upon this bird is by being eaten and consumed and turned into us ourselves. Right. There's all of that kind of weird stuff going on. In, and again, even though most people would say, what, <laughs> when you're telling them this, the fact is, I think that, I, and I hope I've made a, a strong uh, and compelling argument, I believe I have in, the, in, in more than a meal, that, that all of these very weird kinds of psychological uh, events are uh, a coalescing in what seem to be innocent or innocuous events like the turkey pardoning, presidential turkey pardoning ceremony, and in the whole Thanksgiving sacrificial animal, you know, animal sacrificial ritual itself. Right. Well, and the uh, the pardoning ceremony, uh, you mentioned uh, how uh, it was kind of made up that, you know, this was a long-standing tradition, and I wanted to um, just take off from that in that uh, Thanksgiving is one of the uh, main uh, nodes in our culture where we say, where the mainstream says, you know, tradition overrides everything. You may want to have something else uh, to eat on this day, but come on, it's tradition. This is uh, what the pilgrims had at the first Thanksgiving. Uh, therefore, we must have a turkey as the centerpiece of this meal. Uh, and yet the the question of whether turkeys were actually eaten at uh, the first Thanksgiving is is not a uh, it's not a definite there's not a definite answer there if I'm if I'm remembering correctly is that right yes that, there's no there there is nothing specifically uh, that states and nothing amongst the um, uh, um, the original partakers of that meal which doesn't even have a specific date uh, to indicate that the that the turkey was part of the meal although 
the um, uh, uh, William Bradford, the then governor of uh, Plymouth Colony, said something to the effect that um, wrote something to the effect that you know that uh, the men went fouling mm-hmm. and brought back you know fowls or birds, right. um, and that also the Indians uh, uh, who shared the feast uh, brought in deer. Um, I believe that was that that, that was, those were the two respective groups who brought in the, those respective. Uh, animal dead animals for the feast um but there's nothing specifically that states that um that the turkey was one of those fowls one of those birds although it's probably so because turkeys were everywhere in new england and around the on the east coast in fact turkeys were everywhere in the united states except in the coldest upper uh upstate uh new york and in uh, the coldest regions of canada but turkeys were all over the united states i don't think they were found in alaska but they were found throughout the most of the united states down through florida into central america mexico and so on mm-hmm. and so I, I i so it's quite reasonable i think it's more reasonable to assume that there probably were turkeys on the Thanksgiving, uh, first Thanksgiving, the so-called first Thanksgiving table, than um, than 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 that there were no turkeys. But right, again, but it's certainly not. That, it's certainly not the case that the whole meal was oh, based no, around no, no. a turkey fact, plus some side dishes, as we no, know. No, in fact, on page 55 uh, or 53 of More Than a Meal, I say, uh, for example, that the turkey did not become a Thanksgiving main dish outside New England until after 1800, any more than Thanksgiving itself, which as late as 1900, often passed unobserved in many parts of the country. Mm-hmm. And I know I quoted in, um, I quoted somebody here from like the late 18th century who's talking, yeah, here she's, she's in New England. In New England in 1779, um, a young woman kept a diary of Thanksgiving and about her Thanksgiving dinner in New England in 1779, and this is what she said we had for our, our meal. She said we had a fine red deer, again, this is 1779, right. huge uh, 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 shins of, re- of roast uh, pork, a big roast turkey, a goose, and two big pigeon pasties. That's what they had. Um, so uh, they obviously had a huge amount of dead animal dishes, right. but, uh, you know, pigs and deer and geese and pigeons and a turkey. The turkey was just one of, of many dead animals that they were having. It wasn't like, it wasn't singled out as the thing that they had exactly. to have to make it Thanksgiving. Right. And, so and it, it says, I also say here on page 53 that, by 1857, the turkey had become a traditional part of the Thanksgiving holiday in New England. But what that means is that up until around the 1850s, um, the turkey was not part of the tradition in New England, to say nothing of, uh, 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 of, of the other states. Right. So, I mean, you know, it's like all these traditions, when you really look back on every tradition started, you know, there was a time when it didn't exist. But you it's know, especially, I, I think it's especially poignant in the case of Thanksgiving where the uh, the whole it, it's an argument through tradition. I mean, it's it, there's no real good argument for having this dead bird uh, at everyone's meal, but they base their the only thing that they can fall back on it seems is well, it's tradition. We have to do something traditional, and even there, there there's not really anything to that argument. Uh, even well, if the argument were valid, there's not well, right. 
right. I mean, you're right. I mean, most traditions are made up of a combination of lies and forgetfulness and, you know, efforts on behalf of the powers that be, the governments and the industries involved to create something. And, you know, I remember I remember when we were working to try to stop the uh, Turkey Olympics in New Preston, Connecticut, a number of years ago. They were arguing that was a tradition. You know, right. that's been going on forever. Well, it turned out it was only had only gone on for a few years, but already called tradition. Well, what's traditional is the tradition of sarcasm and abuse of an innocent victim and scapegoating. Those things are traditional. Right. Well, I just, I know you have to, I have to let you go uh, soon, but I just wanted to ask you, um, uh, especially in terms of this, uh, this sacrificial question, uh, as uh, avian flu uh, seems to be spreading throughout the world, and uh, turkeys, of course, are one form of poultry that's, uh, uh, that's raised in large quantities and in close confinement uh, and is susceptible uh, to this and may be a carrier. Um, the whole phenomenon of large numbers of birds now being uh, slaughtered uh, and not, <laughs> not even uh, being slaughtered for the purpose for which they were raised, not even having their slaughter have any uh, supposed worth to us in that they're just being killed to stop this flu and uh, or stop the this spread in one place or another. Um, and I wondered if you had any thoughts on that as either uh, a practical matter uh, or as a, uh, you know, looking at it more thematically with the, our culture saying, you know, we've, there's been a mistake made somewhere what people don't understand is that birds are being culled, that is C-U-L-L-E-D. They're being killed by the thousands and the hundreds of thousands, and in some cases in the millions, all the time, if there's even a, 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 a suggestion that uh, some uh, strain of avian flu or Newcastle uh, uh, disease virus or any of these things could possibly um, affect the poultry industry in a large-scale way. And then there are also large-scale cullings, uh, killings of masses of birds in order to uh, just regulate the economics of the industry because when you, you, know, you decrease uh, supply, you can, uh, you can raise prices. And it's a whole economic practice as well as uh, a, a response to a so-called threat. And we, and we, we know, for example, that in, in California in 2004, uh, many uh, companies and, and, and cockfighters, too, simply infected their flocks or claimed that their flocks were infected so they could collect the reimbursement that the governments were in California and the U.S. Department of Agriculture, and the same thing happened in British Columbia in Canada in 2004, that the reimbursements that they were receiving um, at, 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 from the government, which was really taxpayers' money, which also brings in the question of how you know, the, the fact of the extent to which the, uh, the taxpayer who thinks they're getting some kind of a cheap food in, in eating chicken and turkey really is just has no idea to the, of the extent to which their taxes are supporting all of these mass extermination nations, as well as all these exports of animal products and animal tech product technologies and so forth into third world countries. So, I mean, the ramifications are just about endless. But the thing is this, there, 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 there's some question about whether there, there, there is, there is a, a concern that it's not just the handling of, of uh, chickens and being constantly handling live chickens and turkeys and ducks and geese and, or, as well as carcasses. But there is some indication that that uh, uh, Asian flu could possibly come through the 
uh, actual consumption of products derived from these birds. We already know that uh, that uh, diseases, uh, bacterial diseases like um, uh, Salmonella enteritis, uh, Listeriosis, uh, Campylobacter. I mean, these things are transmittable to human beings, and hu many human beings, more than we can possibly imagine, are sick with what people think of as stomach flu, right. and it's really. Uh, foodborne poisoning from chickens, turkey, particularly chickens, but also turkeys, and and that many of these very antibiotics that are now not working in human beings are being used to treat diseases that come from eating poultry in the first place. Right. So it's just this endless recycling of disease and um, uh, uh, dishonesty, and you know who knows where it'll all end. I, I certainly wonder when you know people hear about mad cow disease for a while what they'll do is they tend not to stop eating animal products they look for another animal to eat right. and then they forget because they uh, you know that then they eventually it looks like the government is handling the situation and if there are any cases found of, of mad cow or a, a, avian flu because see the, the most part there's very very little real testing that is done of any of these animals because it's it's cost it's not they don't consider it, the government and the industries don't consider that are cost-effective. Right. So their samplings are very small. So you're always having animals, whether they're chickens or turkeys or cattle or sheep or pigs, they're going to slaughter all the time with all kinds of neurological problems. They're paralyzed. They can't walk. They're, they're, they're thrown on dead piles, and they're ground up, and they're turned back into animal feed, and or else they're somehow or other salvaged for human consumption. So we can only guess and imagine at how many human cancers. Uh, one of the big things that can derive from foodborne poisoning is, is, is that you get arthritis. You get reactive arthritis. So a lot of people who think that arthritis is just a disease of old age or overweight can also have arthritis because they had bouts of food poisoning from eating uh, poultry and other uh, animal products um, and thought it you know, was something that cleared up after a while. But it really didn't clear up because those microbes stayed in their bodies and, micro and, and migrated to their joints. Well, uh, I know uh, we're kind of out of time here. I just wanted to ask uh, in terms of... Uh, November 2005, uh, the Thanksgiving uh, scene and uh, what UPC is going to be doing. Uh, uh, you said you may you may not do uh, an actual demonstration in Washington, uh, but what else uh, is, is on the docket? And do we have any, uh, any indication that, uh, you know, the, the monolith of the turkey at the Thanksgiving table uh, may be uh, weakening or may be, uh, there may be alternatives uh, opening up to people? Well, I think, I think, um, Vance, that for the past few years, there's, there certainly has been uh, a decline in the number of turkeys who are being slaughtered for Thanksgiving. I think two years ago, it was something like a 4% reduction in the number of turkeys uh, it was slaughtered or, or, you know, or purchased for Thanksgiving. There has been a lot of emphasis in the past few years on um, uh, ethnic dishes, you know, recurrence of ethnic dishes, which really goes back to like pre-1850s, you know, um, where there was largely ethnic dishes of Thanksgiving was even on anybody's radar screen at all in many parts of the country. But at the same time, there's also a recurrence of the idea of ethnic dishes with, you know, chopped up chicken and turkey in, the, right. in these ethnic dishes. So um, uh, I think people are, I think there's, there is going to be, a, I know that the turkey industry right now is saying that they are scaling back in the number of turkeys they're producing, not just the, for the Thanksgiving holiday, but year-round. 
because their supplies have, for many years, um, totally outdistanced demand. Uh And the turkey industry has always been playing second fiddle to the chicken industry and always trying to find ways to turn turkey into chicken from a consumer um, uh, standpoint, Uh you know, a fast food, convenience food, and so forth. So they've never quite been able to uh, pull that off very well. So so right now they're tightening up as far as the number of uh, birds they're actually raising for slaughter and slaughtering, uh, attempting to come become more in line with what the real demand is both now and projected. Um, I think that over time there could be a weakening for for a variety of reasons of the uh, the, the turkey as a as the like iconic Thanksgiving meal from the and from I think I put it in the book. For, quoting somebody from the uh, indigent to the institutionalized. Um, but uh, And it could be an avian flu, I'm sure, is going to have an effect on some people. I think there are – I have received a number of uh, emails as well as phone calls from people uh, very concerned about whether eating uh, poultry products, turkeys and chickens, could actually cause them to get avian flu. And, uh, you know, and again, I don't want to give any – I don't want to speak uh, beyond my knowledge, but I certainly have pointed to the uh, – uh, speculations that that certain that could be a factor in there, you know, that could cause avian flu. We just don't really know for sure. Right. Uh, to my knowledge, there may be hidden knowledge. <laughs> the government and some people may know more <laughs> than they're, they're, you know, than they're That's releasing true. to the public. But they're, but they they incur a real chance of, uh, of, of of various types of food poisoning from a wide variety of bacterial. Um, infections that are rampant uh, in the turkey and, and, and the chicken industry. And so I think that, you know, the, the, the increasing information that's in the news, in the, I'd say within the past five years, about, and, and it's definitely increasing, how badly chickens are tur- and turkeys are, are, particularly chickens, but also turkeys are treated in, uh, in the, particularly in factory farming, um, you know, the, the threat of avian flu, the fact is that the fact that there's a more emphasis on uh, diversity of meal plants rather than just the standard turkey on the table. I mean, all of these things may conduce to a decrease in the turkey as the national Thanksgiving uh, bird. It's just, it's, I just think it's kind of hard to predict. I know that, you know, the idea of a huge bird, uh, some type of huge animal, but certainly going back to medieval days, like in France and England, the idea of some huge birds in the middle of the table. I mean, it used to be in France, you know, in, 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 in the Middle Ages, you'd have like a huge peacock, sometimes alive, and all jewel, bejeweled and everything. Hmm. Um, and, 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 of course, back in, in England, it's amazing how many, you know, swans were consumed, peacocks were consumed, just about every type of bird that, that, that existed was consumed. And there was always this idea of a real royal feast, having like a huge swan as the centerpiece or a huge peacock. Um, at, you know, first alive and then slaughtered or all slaughtered already. And, and, of course, we know how cultures throughout the world have had a whole pig with a face and eyes and everything or a huge fish in the middle. So that idea of having a huge animal uh, in the middle of the table, again, goes so far back in uh, human thinking as some kind of sign of wealth and prosperity that to what extent these kinds of atavistic um, attitudes are in, in, you know, somehow endemic in our genes or are certainly played upon by uh, the combination of government and industry. Um, it, I just, you know, I, I, I would like to feel hopeful about things, but realistically, I, I think that, you know, I, I try to work as hard as I can to get people to go vegan, uh, to get people to get away from viewing animals as a food source, educate people about how 
horrifically how you cannot exaggerate the horror and misery and ugliness of all of these animal producing industries. Um, but I'm looking also at the whole, not only our country, but I'm looking at the increasing uh, global situation. And of course, one thing we learn when we, when uh, people become more prosperous, what's the first thing they want? They want to eat more meat. Right. They want to wear more fur. So one, that's one of the reasons why the, why the steel industry is bouncing back, because people in, in Eastern European countries are liberated from communism. So now they can buy fur coat. You know, so right. these are just some of the some of the sad realities that um, that, that that animals face um, with human beings, and the turkey certainly is a is a prime example of that. So I, I believe in working as hard as possible to try to educate people and change their attitudes and help them to see how what the wonderful and increasing number of vegetarian dishes. I know that I was just reading an article, I think it was in the Washington Post, that said that the uh, National uh, Chain Restaurant Association said that, you know, they're, uh, that, that now one out of every five diners wants a vegetarian meal, and that's quite a an increase from you know a few years ago. Right. So you know there are there are definitely and certainly more college students are uh, demanding and, and 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 getting vegetarian meals on their uh, cafeteria menus. So I mean there are, you know there's just a lot of stuff going on right now. A lot of different interacting things happening, and where this is all going to lead, I I just um, I I try to work for what I want and look to the encouraging signs and try to encourage people. But I really realistically don't know. When I look at the whole global situation, particularly uh, where things are going as far as uh, the turkey or any other animals who are used as a food source. Are but one, but sorry, one thing that uh, you are doing, you said, I, I think, uh, before we were uh, recording, uh, is UPC will be having an event on the Saturday after Thanksgiving. Yeah, uh, um, Vance, every year since we started, and that was in 1990, uh, we've had an open house uh, where we invite, we let the media know, and of course we let our members know, and now with the internet, of course we let everybody in the world know that we're having an open house on the Saturday after Thanksgiving, and we invite people to bring a dish uh, that would be suitable for at least four people, uh, totally vegetarian, all vegan. We tell people if you're not familiar with vegan food, just come anyway or, you know, bring something to drink. And we always have uh, a, a pasta here and salad made by the um, local restaurant up the road, which makes fantastic pasta mm -hmm. and wonderful salad. And, and then people bring an array of dishes, main dishes and desserts and so on. So that we encourage local people, for example, we're in a very rural area on the lower eastern shore of Virginia, which is basically owned by the poultry industry. So we have, I've certainly discovered since we moved here in 1998 that there are people here who um, are vegetarians or who would like to learn more about vegetarian eating. And so we always attract people who are curious and people who are interested in people who are already vegetarians and glad to know that there's somebody like us in an event like this on, on the lower eastern shore of Virginia. So, you know, so that's, we do that every year. Okay. Well, uh, I know I've uh, kind of kept you over the time uh, we agreed to, but I, th I thank you for uh, taking time out to talk with us on VegCast. Well, Vance, it's been a great pleasure and I, a privilege as well, and um, I thank you for inviting me to be on your show, and I look forward to future similar occasions. Okay, great. Okay, that was Karen Davis, and you can find out more about United Poultry Concerns at www.upc-online.org. And, of course, that link, along with others, will be available at our show notes at vegcast.com. And while we're on the subject of turkeys, I did want to mention that Farm Sanctuary is celebrating this year the 
20th anniversary of its Adopt a Turkey program, uh, which you might want to check out if you actually want to do something about this rather insane system we have for turkeys. Uh, you can home adopt. You can actually uh, provide a home to a turkey if you complete the adoption application and are, are approved, or if you don't want to be that involved in the life of a turkey, uh, you can sponsor a turkey adopt that way for a one-time fee of $20. Uh, you get the uh, color photograph of your adopted turkey and a certificate, and, of course, uh, this provides funds for feed, bedding, and veterinary care for the turkeys. You can find out more about this at www.adoptaturkey.org. Science Fact. Okay, it's time again for Science Fact. And this time around, uh, we're looking at the investigation that uh, some new details are just coming to light. The federal and state governments of Texas quietly closed an investigation into the infected cow in Texas. You'll recall this was the first domestic case of mad cow, the one that they told us in November of 2004 uh, had been cleared, but then it turned out later when they used an actual credible scientific test on it, it uh, did have BSC. Uh, anyway, they were doing an investigation into uh, the cow and its herd mates and trying to find out what had happened to them. They uh, just closed that investigation in August, but the Dallas Morning News uh, did a, a Texas Open Records request and obtained details about the search, uh, which, uh, as far as I know, were not announced to the public. Why, it turns out that of the 413 cows and calves that uh, these governments were looking at, about 350 of them, or roughly 85%, were sent for slaughter. Uh, the article goes on to mention the investigators' searches for feed records as well as animals of interest. Went back years, many records were no longer available. The state wound up relying on its own data taken in the county between 1990 and 1994 to get a snapshot of the herd. And uh, quotes Dr. Max Coates, Deputy Director for Animal Health Programs at the uh, Texas Animal Health Commission, saying, if it were not for our brucellosis information and database, we would have had extraordinary difficulty in conducting this investigation. And he went on to mention that some producers know they had 14 cows last year, and they don't know whose they were. Uh, and as for the two calves that they were looking for that this uh, mad cow had recently had, uh, Tom McGarity, a professor of food safety law at the University of Texas Law School, was quoted as saying if they're fairly confident that the group they identified as the progeny was complete, and if nearly all of them were slaughtered, well, chances are the progeny was eaten by a human being. Now, we don't know. This is Vance talking again, uh, closing the quotes. We do not know yet whether the offspring of a mad cow, uh, whether a mad cow can be passed to offspring that way. But what is clear about this is that uh, the 
the USDA and many other people in charge of making sure that we keep track of all of this in case a mad cow does pop up. I don't seem to be doing a very forthright and serious job of it, uh, keeping records, keeping track of things, keeping things traceable. So it's just something to keep in mind, whether or not you eat beef or are vegetarian or whatever, uh, it's just something that we need to face that our government agency in charge of looking after our food safety does seem to be uh, less interested in that job than we might At least that's the impression that one gets when we look at this science fact. Hey, Rich. What do you get when you put two guys in an orange room, add a pair of mics, a mixer, a compressor, a couple of sets of headphones, PC, some software, John, a John, you're killing me. What do you get? Well, a little thing I like to call bloodthirsty vegetarians. And what, my friend, is that? It's a podcast. Oh, so it's one of those new internet radio things? Yeah. What do you do? You talk about politics, yeah. media, yeah. culture, uh-huh. philosophy, yeah. and you play music? That's right. But why is it called Bloodthirsty Vegetarians? Well, because we are vegetarians. But why not the show to be about more? So it is. Groovy. I'm hip. Let's do it. Well, we already do, man. Now dig this. You can find us and subscribe at www.bloodyveg.com. Solid. That's Bloodthirsty Vegetarians. www.bloodyveg.com. Not just for vegetarians. Oh yeah, that is, of course, the oft-promised Bloodthirsty Vegetarians promo wrapping up this edition of VegCast. Uh, This is the first of two Thanksgiving-themed shows. We'll have another one just before Thanksgiving, so check back with us then, or simply subscribe uh, to VegCast through iTunes or the podcast uh, podcatcher of your choice. And uh, you'll just get that automatically. This this next show, we'll be talking about uh, more personal perspectives on Thanksgiving, having to deal with family situations and so forth. And uh, we'll be uh, collecting uh, the perspectives of different people, and we would like to have yours. So please send, if you have uh, any anecdotes or strategies or suggestions or questions, about the Thanksgiving family ritual and how vegetarians can survive it.